Welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd, and I wanted to take a little time to introduce the topic and also say thank you for listening. This is the 18th episode, and if you are enjoying these and they are valuable to you, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate it and uh, leave a review if possible. I'd also like to know what you think, or if you have any other thoughts about topics or questions about previous episodes, you can reach me through my website, michaeltoddfink.com, and I'd also like you to, to check that out to see what upcoming events there may be. There's, there's two this month in October, and uh, hopefully there'll be an opportunity to connect. This episode, The Last Taboo, is from a previous recording, and I wanted to give an opportunity for listeners to turn back now if the topic of death is triggering in any way. And um, I also want to let you know that it's probably not what you think. Um, I spend a lot more time investigating what it means to be alive and how breaking down some of the taboos around death could actually be uh, helpful to us and how not a morbid obsession with death but rather a healthy awareness could really make life more beautiful. A couple thoughts that have come to my mind since giving this talk is that it, it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to be overly concerned about life after death if we're not clear about what life before death is. So imagine somebody asking the question, what do you think happens to the the horn of a unicorn after it dies? And then to go into long philosophical debate about where it goes or, or how it decomposes or, or not. It, Obviously, that uh, is all secondary to establishing the truth about the existence of a unicorn. So I think it makes sense to, to really be pondering the question, what is life, uh, life before death, or life after birth, which reminds me of, um, of a parable. It's a Christian parable, I believe, and it's popular some years back, and it's called Life After Birth. It's about twins in the mother's womb having a conversation. And one twin says to the other, do you believe in the Divine Mother? And the other one says, I don't think so. I haven't seen any convincing evidence to believe in such a thing. And the first twin says, well, do you believe in life after birth? And the other twin says, no, I don't think I believe in that either because no one's ever come back to tell us that there's life after birth. How about you? What do you think? And the first twin says, well, I think maybe all around us is the Divine Mother. And, you know, sometimes at night when it's quiet, it's like I can almost hear her singing. And I believe that after we're born, we enter into a bigger world and we may even get to see the Divine Mother. So I think it's an interesting parable because it gets you thinking differently about existence and transitions. And the fear of death is perhaps the fear of the unknown, but maybe even more so it's fear of losing the known. There's a game we like to play with patients in the hospital. It's a thought experiment, and we ask patients to imagine that you won a contest that pays you $86,400 and whatever you 
don't use, you cannot save for the next day. And every morning you'll get a new $86,400 and you can only use it that day. And this game will end at any time. So you have no idea whether it's one day or thousands of days and you have to decide what you want to do with the money. And ultimately, patients give all these good ideas about how they would use the money. And then ultimately, we say well, it's really a metaphor for life because every day there's 86,400 seconds. And whatever seconds you don't use, you lose. You don't get to save it for tomorrow, but you get a new set. However, this game can end at any moment. But to think about it ahead of time is wise. I remember when I turned 27 years old, somebody helped me realize that I had been alive for more than 10,000 days. Now, if you think of living to 100 years old, that's 36,525 days, which takes into account leap days from a leap year every four years. That's not a lot of dollars if that was a salary, and it would really require uh, a person to budget. And if you think of already having spent 10,000 days out of a 36,525 set, if, if you're lucky, then you're deep into it. And if you look back and, and ask, well, what did you buy with that time? Um, it, it might sharpen one's focus on purpose and to think if there's another 10,000, what do you want to buy? How do you want to use it? And uh, that's what we attempt to start to explore in, in this episode. I think the inspiration for this topic was just reflecting on all the patients that I've encountered who were grieving the loss of a loved one or struggling with their own mortality and just realizing how alienating that experience can be from society at large. While you see everybody else around you feeling so far away from that kind of experience and engaged in what appears to be a never-ending life, and to be privately struggling would make it all the more painful. So by starting a conversation about death, hopefully it can lead to people feeling safer to continue that conversation and, and find the support that they need to talk about these real experiences that we will all have to face. When I mentioned to my mom that um, I had given this talk, she said, well, did you tell them that they could go to a death cafe? I said, what's that? I said, well, out here in Northern California, there are death cafes and they fill up really fast. And you just come and you sit down at a table and, and you have some coffee or tea and, and you, you talk with a friend about... Uh, the meaning of life and your thoughts on what happens after death. And I said, well, we don't have that yet here, but maybe this can be a step towards that. It's things like that that lead people to say, hey, you should really be out in California. You should live in California, but they already have death cafes. So here's one in the Midwest. I hope you enjoy the last taboo, the 18th episode of the Kind Mind podcast. This story that comes to mind is about Akbar the Great. 
And Akbar was an emperor, a Mughal emperor, in the medieval times in India. He was a unique ruler. He had an advisor. His top advisor was known as Birbal. And Birbal was a Hindu, and Akbar was a Muslim. So that was pretty progressive for that time. He picked Birbal because Birbal had proven himself to Akbar numerous times that he could be trusted, that he had the best interest of the emperor in mind, and that he was truly wise. Akbar came to think of Birbal as the wisest man he ever met. And so he kept Birbal very close. Birbal became the, the leader of Akbar's court. Akbar had nine men that advised him, known as the Nine Jewels of Akbar's court, and Birbal was at the head. Together, they, they created a lot more peace than previous regimes. But some people didn't quite understand and didn't quite agree with Akbar and Birbal's friendship. One person in particular who was extremely jealous of Birbal was the royal barber, an attendant to Akbar, because he really disdained the notion of Birbal being considered the wisest person in the kingdom. He felt that he was, and uh, he would complain about this a lot. And he said, if, if there just wasn't this Birbal, people would surely know how intelligent I am and maybe I'd even be on Akbar's court. And he's complaining to the royal magician one day as he's cutting his hair. And uh, he says, you have any ideas about what I could do to prove to Akbar how wise I actually am? And the magician said, like you've said before, if there was no beer bowl, then it would be obvious that you're the wisest and you would have the opportunity to prove yourself. So why don't we plot to kill Birbal? And the barber says, well, what do you have in mind? He says, let me think about it. And when they get together again, the magician says, I have an idea. Akbar's father recently passed away, so he's still grieving. If I can come up with a scheme to send Birbal into the afterlife, he'll be gone for good, but Akbar will think he's on a special mission. So the barber says, how do we, how will we pull that off? Well, we'll build a funeral pyre, and I'll tell Akbar that I have found the magic spell that can transport a human being into the afterlife and bring them back safely, a special secret mantra. And I'll chant the mantra when the when the fire is burning, Akbar will request that Birbal go because he's the wisest. And when he jumps on the fire, it'll seem as though he's going to heaven, but really he's just going to be burning in the funeral pyre. And the barber says, it's brilliant. Let's do it. So when they pitch the idea to Akbar, they say, we need to send the best and brightest on this mission. So he says, then we'll tell Birbal. Birbal's wise, so when Akbar explains this special mission, he knows this is impossible. <laughs> In his quick wit, he tells the king, I'll do it, your majesty, but on a few conditions. Okay, I need some time to get my affairs in order. 
because time in heaven doesn't flow the same as it does here. We talked about that in a previous meeting about time. So I need some time because when I go on this mission, you know, who knows when I'll return. He says, that's fine. Why don't you take a few months, get your affairs in order? And he's like, I'm going to need a lot of money too because my family will need to be provided for while I'm gone. And since I could be gone for a very long time, I'd like a big advance. He says, okay, that's no problem. We have plenty of royal riches to pull from. And so Birbal prepares. He prepares by building uh, a secret escape from the funeral pyre in the palace with a group of secret associates. And they prepare an exit out of the bottom and a tunnel that goes outside of the kingdom and into a forest where they have laid out a small hermitage where Birbal can make his escape and live for some time. So when that day comes, everybody is there in the court to see this miracle. They light the fire. The magician chants the mantra, the magic spell, to send Birbal into the afterlife. And then he says, now. And Akbar gives the signal. Birbal jumps onto the fire and immediately starts to burrow down through the flames till he gets to his trap door, his secret door, and exits out and starts to tunnel his way out. And eventually the fire comes down and everything's burnt to ashes. And the magician says, it worked. Now we wait. And Akbar says, well, how long do we wait? He said, who knows? It could be a long time, but he'll eventually return. In the meantime, we have the barber and myself to you know, help fill in for, for Birbal. And some months pass. In the meantime, Birbal is on retreat. After an, enough time has passed, Birbal's hair has grown really long. He has a big beard. Several months later, he decides it's time to come back. Birbal enters the palace. Everyone's shocked. Somebody notices him and then tells everybody, he's back, he's back. And the most surprised is <laughs> the magician and the, and the royal barber. Akbar gathers everybody together, the whole court, all his constituents. It's a big scene. And finally, everyone falls silent. And Akbar says, give us your report, Birbal. He says, well, your majesty, I did indeed make it to heaven and I'm back. This is a momentous occasion. You get to hear from somebody who's been to the beyond. And Akbar says, well, did you see my father? He says, yes, I found your father. He's in the high heaven. And how is he? He's doing fabulous. He has everything you could possibly want. It's heaven. He said, but you'd be surprised. One thing is missing. What's that? He needs one thing from you, Akbar. As you can see, my beard is long and my hair is grown. <laughs> There's no barber in this heaven. <laughs> and his only request to his living heir is that you send your royal barber. <laughs> 
Akbar, <laughs> of course, says, light up the fire, let's send the, and throw on the barber. That's the end of that story. <laughs> and the end of the royal barber. And once again, Birbal proves that he is the wisest talking about this subject of death. I started thinking about some statistics with mortality. A, a lot of money is spent at the end of life, end of life care. Upwards of 200 billion dollars of Medicare spending is for the last 60 days of human life. And when you contrast that with the fact that 88% of the planet believes in an afterlife, it doesn't quite make sense. It speaks to something. And I'm not criticizing the spending as much as I am pointing to a need for understanding the fear around death. Because 30% of that spending has no real benefit for the patients. And 75% of people in the United States pass away in the hospital or in a nursing home or in a long-term care facility, while that exact same percentage report that they don't want to die that way. And I think if we were, we were to discuss it or we were to talk about end-of-life preferences, we would probably, most of us would probably agree, that's not how I envision my conclusion here on Earth. What's behind some of these discrepancies? That's really what I want to talk about tonight. We can explore a little bit the idea of what happens next, but uh, the, the primary purpose of this is to really explore what to do before that. And one of the original meanings of the end is telos in Greek. And telos means purpose. So teleological study is the study of purposefulness. And so death is all about finding out what the purpose is. And because there's a death, that's probably why we have religion in the first place. Imagine if human beings were immortal would we really be that concerned about answering these questions? And so it's the death itself that demands answers. And when a person becomes aware of it, it ignites the spiritual search. And I think about the story of the Buddha before he became the Buddha. He was a, a prince named Siddhartha. And there was a prediction when Siddhartha was born. His father was also a ruler, a king. And the astrologers and soothsayers and seers at the time all told the king that Siddhartha has two destinies. One, he'll be a great ruler, a great emperor, and he'll expand your kingdom and bring tremendous glory to your legacy, to your lineage. But there's another possibility, and this one is stronger that he will renounce his lineage and renounce his position and become a renunciant monk. But he will lead so many people to truth. Well, of course, the king doesn't want that one to happen. So he tries to shield Siddhartha from all the things that might make you question the big picture. So every time someone got sick, he moved them to a different part of the palace. He kept everything wonderful for Siddhartha. 
He always had good food, good music, good activities, pleasant activities, pleasant people. Old people, he kept away. He would tell them like they went on vacation or something like that. Siddhartha never went to a funeral, didn't see death. But after his marriage, there came a ceremony where the prince has to go to the four uh, corners of India and greet the people. And so this is the first time he really branches out. And on this particular journey, he encounters a few people. First, he encounters a really sick person, dying person. And he asks his chariot driver, what, what is this? What's going on with this person? This person's sick and dying. He said, so who, who gets sick? And the chariot driver says, we all get sick and we, we all die. And then he sees a person at, at the verge of death. And then he sees a funeral procession. And the last thing he sees is a monk. So after he sees these four people, he is so curious about the truth and he's no longer interested in the game of uh, ruling the kingdom. And that night he leaves and he leaves his family, he leaves his father, the kingdom, he leaves his wife and his young child. And then he spends six years on his search and realizes something and we call that nirvana, or in Buddhism they call that nirvana. But he returns and he greets his family again and his mother goes with him and his son goes with him. And his wife stays with attending to the, the kingdom. So he was criticized, you know, for leaving. And when he came back, I, I remember reading something about him being asked, what about um, your son's inheritance. And he says, well, I have the inheritance for my son. It's not what you think, and he's welcome to it. So his young son, Rahula, I believe is nine years old at the time, decides to go with his father, and he becomes a monk too. And so does his mom. So it's a beautiful story about this notion that death could lead somebody to the highest state of realization. And it was death that sparked it. It was seeing a dying man and seeing a funeral procession and then seeing a monk and realizing what his true purpose was. Now that's not going to happen to all of us, but the Buddha had a special destiny. And he found his purpose by realizing that time is very limited. And this is a, a teleological understanding of death, that death can actually show us how to live now. There's a Latin saying, if you want peace, prepare for war. So logically, we could, we could also apply that to how to live. If you want life, prepare for death. So now we come to this notion that it's so terrifying. But is it rational to be terrified of death or to have a fear of death? Well, lots of philosophers have explored this. And lots of mystics like the Buddha have talked about the reality of existence and given us some insights. But some philosophers like Lucretius said, there's no reason to fear death because of some simple arguments. If people would think it would be good to live 10 more years when they come to the end, 
then wouldn't it also uh, make sense that you would want to have been born 10 years earlier? And he says, because nobody cares to have been born 10 years earlier and today be 10 years older, then it follows that there's nothing really to be worried about. We don't grieve over the 10 years that we missed prior to our birth, right? So, and when we're born, or when we're conceived, but maybe when we're born, we wake up from non-existence. And that's not a painful thing to remember. It's not painful to think that we didn't exist before that. So in this sort of almost atheistic notion of total annihilation, that's what people really are scared of, I think. But we're not really grieving the time that we didn't exist. And there's some other examples of this, I think, if, if we look at our life day to day. Every night we go to sleep and we go into the abyss. After you dream, you go into deep sleep. And in deep sleep, there's nothing. And nobody laments that. And nobody fears that. It's not like we are clutching the sheets at night hoping that we don't fall into the abyss. We court it. If it doesn't come, we grieve that. We lament that. And if we had a full day and we worked hard and we did what we wanted to do, it comes so effortlessly and it comes so in such a welcomed way. But if we feel like there is so much undone, so much to be worried about, so many loose ends and so many anxieties, then it doesn't come and we can't sleep but we welcome it and we don't want to leave it. It's not like the longer you're in deep sleep, the more tragic that could be. It's tragic when the alarm goes off and, <laughs> and we realize we have to come back. So I've been really trying to pay attention to these three states. Three states we experience every day ordinarily if we sleep. We're awake, we have this waking consciousness, we dream where we create another reality and then there's nothing in deep sleep. And those three states we cycle through. But it's hard to say, when I contemplate the deep sleep, it's hard to say that we're existing at that time. Now somebody else could say you're existing because your heart's beating and so on, but that person can't say it. And if there was only that, if you never came back to the other two states of consciousness, it would be as if we don't exist, right? That's hardly existing. Absolute nothingness, no thought, no awareness, no emotions, no memory. So it's like total annihilation, but it doesn't bother us in the least. And so when I really look at that and I try to uh, prepare for that every night and mindfully reflect on it, my fear of death goes down. So this is one way to contemplate that aspect or that possibility that maybe, maybe nothing happened. Maybe we just go into the abyss. Well, we welcome it every night. But you might say, well, we know we're going to wake up. But we don't know that we're going to wake up. We know we need sleep. And maybe if we weren't so terrified, 
we could be present for that end and know we need this big rest. This was a long time to be awake, a long time to be alive, so to speak. So, but you're right. So, so many people miss it because, miss that moment because <laughs> drugs, because of fear. Fear maybe makes a person unconscious ahead of time. And I, I tend to think that it could be a really wonderful experience. But because of all the built-up fear, we can't be present for that moment. We also tend to formulate our idea about the journey of life as an arc. You know, there's a prime of your life and then there's um, a decline. When people were my age, when I was a child, their birthdays all had over-the-hill banners and things. When they were my age, that's a really wild thought. Um, because I don't feel that way and I don't think that way. I don't think of life as an arc like that. I think of it as a, an ascending pattern that continues forever. And at least in the body, with our physical life, why can't death be the zenith? Why does that have to be something that we decline to? But if you think, and if you formulate the idea and you have the narrative, there was a prime, well then, you know, we're dying after our 20s or whatever. And that's probably why people fight so hard to not be whatever age they are. But if you think of life as this, this ascension to the mountaintop, and when you get there, that's the peak experience then there's always something to look forward to, regardless of what the body's doing. But people say, well, you know, the body gets a lot more pain. Well, you know what? The most pain of my life was in the first 18 years. <laughs> That's the truth. I would not want to do those 18 years over, even if I, and I really did have pain. But even if I didn't have pain, I still wouldn't want to do the 18 years. It's a period of total helplessness. But for me, I had severe allergies and asthma that I just, for whatever reason or another, it just went away in my 20s. And I remember after that started to go away, I was like, oh my God, this is what breathing could feel like? And, um, and so it was like life began in my 20s. And because I didn't know quite how to be healthy, eat healthy, and was just learning meditation, my life got better in my 30s, physically, mentally, emotionally, in every possible way. Now I'm convinced that my best life is always ahead, both physically and mentally and spiritually, because I'm constantly engaged in the process of maturity. And I think if you get on that path, you, you might feel the same way, and you always have this idea that there's more, 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 more to experience, more to learn, and, and I think that also can diminish the fear, because when you don't feel like you're declining, then there can be this uh, illumination and aspiration to get to the top. And then I have this thought about death. If during procreative activity, during sexual activity, if two people under the right circumstances experience a lot of joy, giving part of their life force, if there really is a life force, but it seems like there's some kind of electricity or energy 
operating the body. And by giving a little bit of the life force to create new life, it brings the most joyful moment for most people that they're ordinarily going to experience. Then I think if just giving a little bit of the life force gives an orgasm, then what happens when you give the whole life force? It's got to be completely blissful, unless you don't want it. Just like sexual activity, if, if the conditions are not right, it's not joyful. It could be miserable. It could be chaotic. It could be destructive. It could be violent. But if conditions are right, it's pure love. And that potential, that opportunity is there. But only if we start preparing ahead of time, only if we have the courage to think about, well, what would the preparations be? And unfortunately, people don't have that courage. And that's why, I mean, partly because it's so taboo and less than 30% of people ever talk about their end-of-life preferences. And it makes it hard for families to figure out what to do, how to, how to respond, and, and then ultimately how to grieve. I took a course uh, at Georgetown 20 years ago called Death, Dying, and the Healing Arts. And that kind of opened my mind to having the courage to discuss this, talk about it with family, and think about those things. I mean, we have an idea that maybe I could live to be 70, 80, 90, or hopefully 100 or whatever, but, but nobody knows. And um, at some point, we're probably, and I mean, the time is now, but at some point, we're going to have to have serious conversations about life extension and longevity. In the last 200 years, we have doubled the human lifespan. In fact, in the United States, a hundred years ago, there was a year where the average lifespan for a man in America was 39 years. Probably because of wars and things. So we've just doubled the human lifespan. We may actually have to answer the question at some point, do we want people to live on and on and on and on? And eventually, we'll know much more about the codes and the, the, the biology, the biological processes that can delay that for longer and longer and longer. That's something that we have to think about. But would that remove the fear of death? Because even if you could live long, that doesn't mean that you'll be protected from accidents and, and certain, certain events. But it's a question that has to come. And I think when you think about just being a human being forever, that also sounds overwhelming. And I think, I don't know, but my suspicion is that if you had suicidality, which is common, way more common than people think to have a suicidal thought, but if you were suffering in some way, I can't imagine how difficult that would be in a culture where everyone acts as if we're immortal because that's what you see among people. Everything people do. Think of all the choices that you made today. How many were those made with the understanding that life is short? Probably very few, right? We're doing everything knowing that it's just an ongoing thing with work, with family, with projects. And so to see that all around us at all times and people engaged like myself in immortality projects like music, my seven albums or whatever will live on.
And at one time, that was really, you know, important to me. I got to leave something that will continue to speak for me after I'm gone. Fortunately, that's not so important to me. And I, and I, and I also realized after playing a thousand concerts, I know there's not another thousand. I just know it. And, and you start to see that. And so now there's something totally different when I perform. It's like every performance actually can be as if it's the last performance. And that was something that I just could not access before. I'd be so in my head thinking about other things because there's always another performance. But now I know there's not. I know that they're limited. And if I could have that awareness sooner, then I could have been even more connected to the present moment. And I was wondering, you know, there's got to be differences in cultural taboos around death. So my first thought was, well, my Mexican heritage celebrates Dia de los Muertos. I'm not too in touch with Hispanic culture. So I asked my family and I asked um, some other Mexican friends who, who I know and, and colleagues of mine about death. And, and several of them said, it's not as taboo because like, for example, we have Dia de los Muertos and we know that at least once a year, we're all gonna be in the cemetery and we're gonna dress up and we're gonna talk about death and we're gonna remember people who are gone and it's gonna be a great celebration. So to talk about it in between wouldn't be too taboo because you know you gotta get ready for this event anyway. So I thought, I wonder if there's any data to support this in terms of suicidality. Like if death wasn't so taboo, would there be any correlation with suicide rates? Because I was saying before, in a world where everyone presents as immortal, and you know you're suffering, but it seems like it will go on forever. That's gotta be unbearable. You would want out. But in a world where it's so apparent, this is going to be over at any moment. Look, we're in a cemetery. All these people are gone. 150,000 people die a day on this planet. So I looked and the United States is 48th highest suicide rate on the planet, which I think is very high for such a developed nation. And Mexico is 148. There are almost three times as many suicides per capita in the United States compared to Mexico. I don't know if it's because of Dia de los Muertos. All I'm saying is it's an interesting correlation. I think it's worth exploring more. So this is not a criticism of religion. This is just a fact. We get a lot of our religious beliefs before we learn the scientific method, right? Before you learn about hypothesis, observation, testing the hypothesis, and coming to conclusions, you already have a conclusion. We're told what the ultimate reality is, that there's God and that you have an immortal soul in religious upbringing before you learn that. So most people then will go on, most religious people will go on without ever really investigating that or testing that because it's already accepted as a conclusion because you came to that conclusion before you learned logic. I almost think like it would be wise not to introduce esoteric concepts until logic is introduced. So the child has to be old enough 
to actually think critically about the reality of the universe and the nature of an immortal soul. That's why sometimes when I hear some parents say, well, we don't know when they're asked, you know, what happens when this go goes down? And parents say, we don't know, but we can talk about it more as, as, as you get older and you can tell us what you think. Um, I think there's some wisdom in that. Now, this, let's look at some of the explanations from different religions. So, let's say we take Christianity and there is an idea that the soul will go on, right? And people will say, well, you know, my soul is going to go to heaven and that's where I'll meet my loved ones. But let's look at this critically for a moment or look at this logically. Death means medically that the biological processes in the body stop. And there is a sequence of events. Things continue after the brain dies and after the heart stops, then eventually tissues stop doing certain things and cells stop doing their functions. And eventually, the human body merges into the chemistry of the planet and the cosmos. Where out of that could a soul go? Let's say maybe, like in some Hindu thought, the soul is more like electricity. Surely something is animating all this matter because when you don't have this body and you just have the elements, we don't say that there's anything alive. To just have water in a cup, we talk about as not having life. So how is it when you bring these elements together, sometimes it's animated? Well, maybe there's an electricity. So if you look at electricity, or the effect of electricity, we could say the human life is like a light bulb. And when the bulb burns out, the electricity goes on. The electricity doesn't die. So maybe there's something to that. But what's not clear is, does this electricity come into the brain and into the body, or does it come as an emergent property of the brain? And philosophers don't know for sure. Like, consciousness is not clearly understood yet. And that's what it really boils down to, because I think to assume that after your body goes back into the chemistry of the cosmos, that somehow it gets reassembled and that's what goes to heaven, well, I think the burden of proof would be on the people claiming that. And maybe that happens, but there's, there's not a good reason to believe that's what happens. And if we think then there is this electricity, when does it come in and where does it go? And if I say that that's my soul and my soul is going to go on to heaven, then where am I going to go? My soul will go to heaven. Well, what good is that going to do me? <laughs> I'm not saying I go to heaven. And if I say I go to heaven, what do I mean? I mean, do I mean the body? No. Do I mean the brain? Well, no, because that, that dissolves too. And if I'm not identified with that, if I don't have the awareness I am that, then what good is it? Then of course you'll have fear because people think they're the body. To live now for something beyond means that we're probably going to miss something because we fall into this pattern all the time anyway of working for some future experience. Like, I'm working, working, work. why am I working every day? I mean, maybe so I can retire one day or because there's a house that I want to get. So we're constantly working for something in the future. 
But when will we just rest easy in our own being? On three consecutive mornings, I popped out of my body, not meditating. So it was like one of the most transcendental experiences that wasn't the most, but one of them happened three consecutive mornings against my will. And I could see myself, I could see the house, I could see all, the whole neighborhood eventually. I assumed I was dead. I assumed I was dying or having a heart attack looking at my body sitting in the chair or wherever it was in the room on those particular days. And then I came back because of fear, mostly because I was like, please, I don't want, I don't want this experience, you know? And, and so, you know, my natural thought afterwards was like, okay, I don't need the body to be alive or to exist, right? And I think that could be the case, but I've also had a dream where the exact same thing happened. And I always say this because the dream tells me it is possible for my mind to create an experience where I am outside of myself. I mean, how did it happen in the dream? I won't know until I know, until I'm there, you know? And so until then, for me, my attitude is keep investigating. And so in meditation, I investigate. And in meditation, I've come up to the same place. And when I get to that place, I get really afraid. And I come back. And then I try again. And sometimes I can't get back to that place. But I know that I have to keep undoing the fear. And I think that's, that's where I'm at at meditation. I can get to this really, really deep place where everything starts to dissolve, but I'm not ready yet to let all that go. So what this is to me is an idea of selfhood. We're really attached to living here in the body, and we think we are the body. And, and if you don't understand what I'm talking about with this illusion of self, we've talked a little bit in the past about how we use the word I. We say I, but it's not really clear who that I is or where it is. Like, I cooked this food for you tonight. But if we really look deeper, when I say I cooked the food, what do I mean? Well, I chopped the vegetables. But the blade chopped the vegetables. Well, I was holding the blade. Am I the hand? No. Well, I had the thought to. Are you a thought? <laughs> what if there's no thought? Do you not exist? And if you keep looking like this, or you ask yourself two questions in succession, what sounds more true? There is a house or I am a house? There is a house. There is a car or I am a car? There's a car. There's clothes or I am clothes? Sounds more true to say there are clothes. Then it gets tricky. <laughs> There's a body here, a body-brain complex talking and going on and on about death. Or, I am a body. Well, that's where everyone gets confused. So, to help, we can take any part of the body. There is a foot, or I am a foot. There's a foot. When we keep going and we get to the brain, there is a brain, or I am a brain. Well, I think most people would say that they have a brain. So there is a brain. And then you get inside. There are emotions or I am emotions. What do you think? 
There are feelings or you are feelings. Well, when someone's depressed, don't they say, I'm depressed? That means identification. But feelings, emotions, are more like the weather. There was this big, dark cloud that came over Plainfield before this meeting. I looked at it from my office window and I was thinking, what's going to happen? Will it turn into a big storm or will it pass? But I didn't think that it says anything deeply about Plainfield. <laughs> but what happens if you have a really dark thought? You will think it says something about you. Oh my God, what kind of person am I to have this kind of thought? But in reality, there is thoughts, and sometimes they're dark thoughts, and sometimes they're bright thoughts. If I was really the thinker of the thought, like Thor throwing the lightning bolts out of the clouds, why would I ever think a dark thought? Wouldn't I just think happy thoughts and positive thoughts all the time, if it was really up to me? But really, it seems like it's a lot more like the weather. There are thoughts, and I'm not the thoughts. And if we keep examining in this way, we can separate from all of the non-self. But unfortunately, that doesn't leave us with anything to say that's the self. And that's why the Buddha had the philosophy of anatta, which meant no self. And what's really curious is how did the Buddha preach that there's no self, but there's reincarnation? <laughs> You don't have a self, but you will come back. <laughs> and I'm not saying he's wrong. It's a paradox. Something will come back. What will come back is the non-self. And since you think you're the non-self, you will come back. That's the paradox. And if you wonder about this illusion, or you think, no, this, that doesn't make any sense what you're talking about. Well, let me tell you a little quick story here. So in 2005, I got rid of my television. Now we have phones and computers where all the apps and things are. So I see stuff now. But for about 10 years, I didn't watch TV. I didn't know what was going on. I did hear, though, over and over, Breaking Bad is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally finished it this year. And I spread it out over the course of a year because I don't have enough time to watch all those 60-some episodes. But when I got to the last episode, and there's spoiler alert here, but if you haven't seen Breaking Bad and you're a television watcher, that's on you. <laughs> but feel free to close your ears. So in the last episode, Walter White dies, and they play a particular song at the end. Do you remember which song that is? By Badfinger, Baby Blue. This song is beautiful, and it's perfect. It's like the best song choice for the best finality, finale of the best show. <laughs> and when I see Walter die and the camera like lifts up above him and he's got this sort of half smile on his face and the words Baby Blue is so perfect and the opening line of the song, Guess I Got What I Deserved, is just so perfect. I found myself wanting to hear the song again and again. And I felt so filled with emotion, including sadness for Walter. I really, I really felt sad for the tra I was like, this is a great American tragedy. It's like a, a Shakespearean tragedy. So I go onto YouTube to play Baby Blue, and I start reading the comments. And comment after comment, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of comments are, I can't listen to this song without crying hysterically for Walter. <laughs> 
Rest in peace, Walter White. There will never be another Walter White. To Walter White, my perfect star, my perfect silence, or whatever Gail said to him about Walt Whitman. On and on and on of grieving. So all the people are grieving. But you know what I thought? What came to my mind? Badfinger, the, the, uh, the band whose song it is, has such a tragic story. The lead singer, the, the one who wrote Baby Blue, committed suicide three days before his 28th birthday. His bandmate, that was Pete Ham, his bandmate Tom Evans, had such a hard time coping with seeing his friend hanging that he hung himself in 1983. This is one of the great rock and roll tragedies because they had several consecutive worldwide hits but had no money because they signed such a bad deal, they got nothing. They got screwed by Apple Records, the Beatles label, and they were the first band signed by them. They signed with a bad manager who manipulated all of their royalties. And Pete Ham exited the band with nothing and ended his life. But meanwhile, everyone's grieving Walter. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't tell you that we can manufacture any kind of narrative, and you know what? People went on to organize a funeral in New Mexico for Walter White. What does that tell you? I mean, it tells me people, thousands of people, grieving the death of a fictitious meth dealer murderer. <laughs> You're crying all over the world and crying when they hear that song. To think that we could grieve the loss of the non-self doesn't sound so out of the question. So I hope you can appreciate that example. Aldous Huxley in his book, The Doors of Perception in the 50s, talks about his adventures with mescaline. And he has a interesting thought about the brain. He describes the brain as a filter, as a valve, and he calls the self or the mind, mind at large. And so the brain is like a receiver. So consciousness in his, according to his uh, revelations with peyote, are <laughs> such that it's like your cell phone your cell phone is connected to the cloud, right? But if the cell phone dies, goes bad, the cloud still exists. And the cell phone receives information from the cloud. And you have access to some amount of information. And the information that you choose, that you put on the phone, you put your playlist, you have your searches, you have your contacts, but that all exists in the cloud. But because you bring it together in a certain configuration, you say, this is my cell phone. And eventually that cell phone dies and all that information still is merged into the cloud. I think it's interesting. It's, you know, it's an interesting concept, but it just may not be true because it could be that Consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. Like, when you do something to the brain, then your whole mental experience changes. 
This is why I think in some religious cultures, there's such a stigma around mental illness because people think of the mind as somehow separate. And so when people are suicidal or depressed, people who don't understand mental illness will say things, well, well why can't you just be happy? Well, why can't you snap out of it? I mean, you got so many good things in your life. In split-brain patients, split-brain means that to get some grip on seizure disorders, it was thought to cut the connection between the two hemispheres. So there's one primary connection called the corpus callosum, which is a bundle of nerves that bridge the two hemispheres. And communication happens across this bridge. So in patients who had that severed to stop seizures from traveling from one hemisphere to the other, it was thought this works and there's nothing really different about these people. But then some scientists found that there is actually something different because information, sensory input, goes to the opposite hemisphere, right? So if I hold this journal in my left hand, the knowledge of that goes to my right hemisphere. And so what some experiments revealed was if you had a subject keep information only in one hemisphere, you would notice some peculiar things. So if they closed their eyes and touched, let's say, a tennis ball with their left hand, they know it's a tennis ball, but they can't tell you it's a tennis ball because the speech center, Broca's area, is on the left and the knowledge of the tennis ball is in the right. So they would know that they're touching a tennis ball, but unless they looked at it and could get that information to the left hemisphere, they couldn't tell you. And so there was really a case now known as alien hand syndrome, where you may have heard of this, where a woman tried to kill herself with her left hand, a split brain patient, but stopped herself with her right. <laughs> and is it possible that we have some of this going on even now? Why is it that I want more company, but I also want to be left alone? I love my family. I do want to see them in heaven, but I also don't want to see them all the time while we're alive. You know, this is an interesting thought with heaven. Like heaven is like, this is where we'll all get back together. But 60% or more of marriages don't last while we're alive. You know, like so many of our connections, we ultimately decide, no, they should just end while we're still living. So I think it's kind of strange <laughs> to think that we're all gonna perfectly get along <laughs> in the afterlife. Well, we're, our personalities are gonna have to change big time, right, for that, for that to work out. I remember one atheist comedian saying to his uh, brother-in-law that, you know what, why I don't wanna go to heaven? Because you're gonna be there. <laughs> but, so I mean, it's something to think about. And, Let's consider this. Um, let's say you're on your deathbed and the doctors and the hospital is trying to do everything they can to, to ward it off, to prevent it. But it's going to be really expensive. And like I mentioned, we spend so much. The, the median ex expense for a family in the last year is $80,000 in the United States. And Medicare spends $200 billion for the last two months per year. And let's say you're getting to that point and there's all these expenses, but the doctor says, you know what, we can just stop all this effort and 
we can book your ticket to Hawaii where everything will be restored there and all your health will come back and then your family will come there when, it's, when they get to this point in life. And everyone else who's already gone or gotten to this point, they're already there so you can catch up with them and then everybody else will catch up with you. Well, don't you think most people say, yeah, let's just do that. I'll just go to Hawaii and restore my health. And Well, that is what the promise is, right? But apparently, you know, we don't believe it. So all I'm saying is, I'm not saying it's not true, heaven story, uh, reincarnation, I'm not saying it's not true. All I'm saying is that the belief is not enough because people don't feel as though it's enough. It does not remove their fear at the end and that's what we have the evidence for. So what I'm suggesting or urging or proposing is to dive into the concept of who you are now. Through meditation, I keep removing some layers of the non-self. And every time I shed something that's not truly me, I become more peaceful and I become less afraid. And when I really mindfully try to understand what's going on in the three states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep sleep, and the more I realize that there's nothing to be afraid of with deep sleep, that the more I feel okay, at peace with whatever's going to come. The less I see my body as me, the more I feel at peace with the idea that my body will become what it always was. It was always just the dust of the universe and star stuff. So I invite you to be mindful, to pay attention to the present moment, and not necessarily to live every day as if it were your last. Because if we were truly living every day as if it were our last, we would do some radical things. <laughs> but I don't think it's too far out to live every day for me as if it were your last. To live every day as if it was everyone else's last means I'm not going to empty all my bank accounts. But I am going to do everything I can to let you know how much I love you or how meaningful you are to me. And I don't want to wait because if I'm living every day as if it's your last, then I want to listen to you. I want to just put everything down and be completely present. And it turns out that for a lot of people in hospice care at the end, they wish not that they did something different or had a different life or married someone different or had a different job, that they just were there more for what actually happened. That they were just more present with everything they did experience. So we don't know all the answers to all these things, but I believe we have more access to truth than we realize through mindfulness and meditation. And I think Bertrand Russell great philosopher of the 20th century, who was found to be unfit to teach at the University College in New York because of his radical ideas. And only a decade later, he won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And in his essay, What I Believe, very scientifically thought out philosophy of life and death, I think he sums up how to live really beautifully. He said, the good life is one that's inspired by love and guided by knowledge. And I think that
That's it. I can use that and I can keep going. Be inspired by love and keep being guided by knowledge, which means don't take anything for granted. Just because we're told something in childhood doesn't mean that we don't have to think for ourselves and that it's all answered. Otherwise, if we put that off, we'll find ourselves where 75% of all the other Americans find themselves, afraid in the hospital bed. And maybe that's where we'll end up, but we don't have to, we don't have to go afraid. And if we start to talk about it now, it doesn't have to be morbid. I mean, to say to my friend, you know, let's talk about death over dinner. That would be thought to be really morbid. And they would probably be like, no, why do you want to talk about that? But the reality is, if I could talk to my friend about death, I might actually come away enlightened and have a much clearer picture of how I want to live my life. And I might be able to just let so many other things fall away that make me miserable because I know what I'm here to do. So keep in mind that the end means the purpose and that life is not an arc where we're now on the decline if you're my age or older. You're not over the hill. You're just ascending and ascending in love and in light and knowledge. And let it be a journey where when you get to the end, if there is an end, you can get all the joy out of that moment that there is. And that's neat how we can make that shift, that pivot. I could live every day as if it's my loved one's last and be much more present and you know, not miss those opportunities to say I love you or at least to just communicate that energetically, like I'm here, you know. And so, you know, whether there is a paradise or heaven or afterlife or reincarnation, you know, some of the problem with reincarnation <laughs> that I've noticed in India, living in India, is that there's a sentiment like, eh, there's always next life. <laughs> in terms of the spiritual search. And uh, my meditation, meditation teacher told me, look how beautiful the Christian message is. He's raised Hindu. He's an Indian monk. Look how beautiful the Christian message is. One test. How much more will you study? And I remember when I went to, um, when I spent a semester in Ireland studying at University College of Dublin, I did a semester of a bunch of philosophy courses and uh, there was just one test, one exam. What you get on that, that's your grade. And I remember the intensity of that. You know, there's not like, you know, 10 assignments along the way for you to sort of get a feel for it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, you know, I do think that maybe different teachers need to communicate a different message. There's also, you know, a different meaning with respect to the culture. You know, a very wealthy culture might find the notion of reincarnation exhausting. Well, I've, I mean, I have money, I have everything. And that's why we see sometimes people who have tremendous wealth and opportunity, they still commit suicide. They just want off this wheel the wheel of Dharma or wheel of uh, birth and death that like the Buddha talks about. But for a poor person, say, hey, you should want out of this business. And they think, but I haven't even had a chance to be successful, to be powerful, you know, to have opportunity. 
well, you'll get another chance then, you know. So I do think that there's something to the nature of the t teaching, and I don't necessarily think like one is wrong or, or any of these can't be compatible because for one thing's for sure that in my mind that uh, if I come back, I'm not coming back as Todd because everything that I've called Todd is already gone. In fact, older Todds are already gone. Younger Todds, I should say. <laughs> you know, the infant Todd is gone and all the atoms that made up that boy are gone. But I have a thought and I have a memory. So I say, I'm still here. But maybe if we could realize that we don't exist in the way that we think we exist, there wouldn't be so much fear of not existing. Because we think that we exist in a way that we don't, really. And if we could realize that, then maybe, maybe some of the fear would dissipate. Let's experiment with it, though. In the Mahabharata, which is the giant epic of India, it's an 18-volume uh, set of stories of a great battle between warring families. The sixth book is called the Bhagavad Gita, the six of 18, which many people are familiar with as the Hindu Bible. It's a conversation between Krishna, the Lord, and uh, his student, Arjuna. Arjuna has four brothers, and the eldest is named Yudhisthira, who's the king to be. And in one part of the epic, the five brothers are on a special mission in the woods. They're exiled from their kingdom for a period of 12 years. And in the woods, they're searching for a special deer. They're pursuing this deer and they come to a lake and they're very thirsty. So one brother goes to fetch water, but he doesn't come back. And a second brother goes and he doesn't come back. Finally, all have gone and not come back. They're right next to the lake, and finally Yudhisthira, the king, goes. When he comes to the lake, he sees all four of his brothers dead. And there's a crane sitting on, the, on a stone on the lake, and the crane starts talking to Yudhisthira. And it turns out the crane is a yaksha. A yaksha is a, like a mythical being, like a fairy. And the crane tells Yudhisthira, I killed your brothers because they refused to answer my questions. So I put it to you, king. Are you willing to answer my riddles? If you are willing and you answer them successfully by my judgment, then I will restore the life of your brothers. So there's about 18 questions or so, and they're very nuanced, but I'll just reveal some. The crane asks Yudhisthira, what is faster and more subtle than the wind? And he has to answer quick. He says, thought. The crane asks him, what is more numerous than the straws of all the, the grass around the lake? And he says, human worries. Then he says, what is that which, when renounced, makes all people respect you? He said, pride. What is that that you could lose that would make you rich? Yudhisthira says, desire. What is the cause of the universe? Yudhisthira says, love. And he says, what is the greatest wonder of humanity? And Yudhisthira says, the greatest wonder is that every day things are dying, people are dying, but everybody goes on living as if they're not going to die. 
That's the greatest wonder. And that's the final question. And the crane is happy and brings his brothers back to life. So I think it's something to reflect on. Let death be an opportunity to reinvent how we want to live in the present moment. And let death become an opportunity for us to fulfill our purpose here in this life and be able to come to that point as if we're reaching the mountaintop, not as if we're falling into a dark pit. Everywhere around us is an example of life and death. The breath is born, it comes in, it matures, and it starts to go out, and it merges back into space. In spring, life emerges, it matures in the summer, it changes colors in the fall, and then it dies in the winter, and it repeats again and again and again. Watch your breath and appreciate that process.